Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Mitch. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. This week, we have a double issue special on the 2016 Year Ahead Security Conference, an international security intelligence defense outlook for 2017. The conference was held on December 8th at the Canadian War Museum. As you may or may not know, this conference is organized annually by the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies, situated in Carleton University right here in Ottawa. It features prominent panelists and audience members from all walks of the security, defense, and intelligence circuits, both in and outside of Canada. Now, this year's panel topic covered hotspots of the world and impact on Canada, the future UN and Canada's role, the world after the U.S. elections, and new horizons in cyberspace and the Arctic. Policy Talks fortunately was granted exclusive interviews with some of the panelists, headed by our hosts in crime, Nicole Halseth and Matt Potter. And today, we're joined in the studio by members of our Policy Talks team, Mark Hyken and Bridget Healy, to comment on the Year Ahead Conference and to help us kind of roundtable this uh, the important issues that were raised, and to help us plan our year ahead. So, Mark, Bridget, thanks for coming in tonight. Thank you for having me here, Mitch, Mel. Always good to step into the spotlight, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> glad to be here. And to what what better time than uh, the last podcast episode of the year? Exactly, exactly. And it's it's a it's a nice, comfy. Uh, setting now in the studio with us four instead of just Mitch and I. <laughs> just so cozy. It's very cozy. Uh, so yeah, uh, Bridget, you were one of our team members at the conference this year. Can you kind of give us a bit of insight on what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. The conference was really well put together. A lot of what the panelists discussed this year was actually around a lot of uncertainty in 2017. So you had a lot of really big moves and shakes happen on the international stage with regards to the EU, you know, looking over the UN and its fragility at this point, especially in dealing with international crises and, of course, the recent Trump election. And a lot of the panelists, they described this as really leading to a culture of insecurity in and on the international stage now. And I thought that was really a prevalent note that kind of came through the entire conference, even given how, you know, how disparate the topics were. You know, you go from mm -hmm. the Arctic to cybersecurity all in one panel. And it was, yeah, it was really interesting and a lot of fun. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly a little disappointed that I was not able to be there in person. Um, but I suppose that's what tonight's episode is for, for us to kind of break it down a little bit. Um, so I think we should just jump right in uh, and start uh, to, to, to analyze what was discussed at the conference. So we'll start off with looking at um, one aspect of the conference, which was the future of Canadian peacekeeping 
and the structure of the United Nations. Um, so we're going to play a clip here uh, featuring our first uh, uh, distinguished guest, Dr. Jane Bolden, um, discussing, uh, first of all, providing an, an, uh, a, uh, an introduction to, to, to her background and discussing um, Canada's impending peacekeeping mission uh, or missions and where they may be. This is Matthew Potter with Policy Talks Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jane Bolden. Uh, thank you for joining us. No problem. I wonder if you could just maybe give us a brief uh, idea of your background as well as your general research interests, and then we'll proceed with some questions. Okay. So I teach at the Royal Military College of Canada in Kingston. Um, I teach both in the political science department and in what's called war studies, which is our graduate program where you can do both a, well, either an MA or a PhD. Um, and while at the undergraduate level, the students are all officer cadets, at the graduate level, you can be either um, a military or a civilian. So we have a real mix of, of people there. Um, my research interests are, are primarily associated with the UN. I do a lot of work on the UN Security Council um, and how it operates and how it's operated over time, um, with particular emphasis on the authorization of, of uh, peace operations. Um, and I've, in the past 10 years, done two different books on the UN and regional organizations and how they uh, respond to conflict in Africa. Starting off, what are the implications of a potential Canadian uh, UN peacekeeping operation in Africa? So at the moment, um, the Canadian government has said that we will commit to an operation in Africa. Um, it hasn't said which one. The three that seem to be being considered are Mali, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and I'm missing the third one all of a sudden. Um, Mali seems to be the one that is, um, oh, so Central African Republic. Mali seems to be the one that people think is the most likely. Um, that may be partly because of the um, Francophone connection. We are um, probably being um, heavily pushed by the United Nations to consider Mali. Um, also CAR because of that um, capacity for the second language mm. uh, for francophone support, um, which not a lot of countries bring. Um, all of those operations are difficult ones. These are all complex conflicts. Um, things could change very quickly on the ground. Um, Mali in particular, there's been a lot of attention to the terrorism aspect, especially in certain regions of the country. The possibility that Canadian troops could be specifically targeted and it's certainly the case that UN troops are being targeted um, in that conflict in particular. Um, that's one of the things that's changed over time, particularly in the post-Cold War period, um, which is the um, lack of respect, the lack of, of uh, an acceptance of the UN peacekeeping role as something that is different. Mm. Um, they are being considered and targeted as if they're another group in the conflict, um, okay. and that's been a change. So that's a difficult aspect of the operation. Mark, why don't we start off with you? Could you share some thoughts on this kind of shift that Dr. Bolden's talking about uh, in terms of UN peacekeeping now, now having the UN being considered another group instead of a neutral set of peacekeepers? Well, I think to a degree that would be inevitable in a lot of conflicts after all these years since the the UN would primarily intervene to sort of ensure state stability. Obviously, some groups within a state that's experiencing conflict would rather that there's a change in government or, you know, that maybe they can fragment it into 
smaller territories that these groups can then control. So the UN, I'm not sure what, like when would the last time have been that the UN's actually seen as a neutral force in a conflict. It's always going to be seen as sort of the, the one that's most interested in preserving the status quo. And in terms of like a shift to peace building more than peacekeeping now, I mean, the fact is that there needs to be, Professor Boldan's right, there needs to be a peace to keep to begin with, frankly. And in a lot of these conflicts, there isn't any peace. So UN forces do actually have to take a more active role than we would have seen in, say, Rwanda, for example, where, like, in theory, the idea was just to make sure that conflict didn't break out again everything was kept nice and stable after the fighting was over and everyone could sign a peace agreement that didn't work out that way and i think since then we've seen sort of even before rwanda even there's been more of a rise in u.n forces actually having to take an active role and ensure there that there is some level of stability to begin with Absolutely. Bridget, any any additional thoughts to that? No, I think that's a really good point. You know, there's so, I think the definitions between peacekeeping and peace building are so nuanced that a lot of us are still trying to figure out, you know, operationally which ones go into which buckets and what you really want your mandate to be on the ground. I also thought it was really interesting that you know, she was describing that it would either be Mali, the DRC, or the Canadian African Republic. And for me, I think I totally got that last acronym <laughs> wrong. They no, play, ju- no judgment over here. The Central African Republic. <laughs> and I think that a lot of what I had been reading was all about Mali. And so I was wondering even more, we know that the DRC and the CAR have really been in protracted conflict, but it's interesting to see how Security Council makes decisions over one or the other when they really have a mandate to protect against all three. And it was interesting to hear she was very analytical about how Security Council makes certain decisions and kind of focuses on one over the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it was interesting how she was mentioning that, you know, because of because uh, because we're a bilingual country, this is something those are that's part of the reason that Mali or or the uh, Central African Republic uh, are being considered. And, and a lot of the time people ask, you know, what's the added value? What can Canada bring? And often I think she says later on, you know, it's we have well-trained troops, but that's something very specific to Canada that's brought to the table with that. So I thought, Mitch, anything to add? Uh, I mean, she, Dr. Bolden identified the, those three countries. I was surprised that, surprised, not surprised, that there are other countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa or in just the continent of Africa um, that require some degree of, of there's, 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 there's conflict in other countries. I'm surprised that South Sudan hasn't been mentioned more. Um, and yeah, I, and really I'd, I'd be interested to, to kind of know why preemptively that might be taken off the table. Um, of course, maybe it isn't. But um, these three seem to be mentioned more often. But, I mean, South Sudan, for example, I don't see why that, that shouldn't be worthy of consideration um, for, for Canadian troops as well. All right. I guess we'll move on to the next clip by Dr. Bolden. 
uh, talk uh, discussing the future of Canadian peacekeeping and and can Canada's shift to more military cooperation focus on NATO. So we've heard talk that perhaps Canada's engagement in a UN uh, peacekeeping operation is too fast, too soon. Is it a possibility that Canada's shift towards NATO operations in uh, the 90s and away from traditional peacekeeping might have eroded the nation's peacekeeping capabilities? Yeah, I've heard that discussion. Um, I don't think so, personally. Um, if anything, if you look at the types of situations they're going to be involved in on the ground, um, our experience in Afghanistan is a plus. Okay. Um, the troops are uh, used to that kind of difficult situation, a variety of actors, um, things changing from day to day. Um, but even leaving that aside, I think one of the strong points of the Canadian commitments um, to international operations over time is precisely that we provide capable, well-trained troops who are able to deal with changing situation on the ground. It's one of the things Canada's known for. Um, and so I'm not somebody who says, well, we're out of that mode and it's mm -hmm. going to take us time to get back into it. So what do we think? Do we, do we agree with that statement? Uh, has Canada through its experiences uh, militarily in, in the recent past, uh, has that overcome any, any, any uh, possibility that, we've lack, that we lack capacity for peacekeeping in the modern era? I, I wouldn't so, go so far as to say it's completely overcome those issues. That's going to depend on the context of the conflict, a whole bunch of factors that are going to change on a case-by-case -case basis. But I do agree that all those years of, of fighting in Afghanistan and trying to well keep it stable have helped the Canadian forces to a degree in developing the kind of experience necessary for peacebuilding operations. Because... Largely speaking, it is going to be similar in, in like what the objectives are. I mean, logistics might be different. In fact, they almost certainly will be different in terms of a geography alone. But I do feel that the, all the years of participating in NATO operations can only help Canadian forces do better in these kinds of operations. I thought it was really interesting, even for the fact of almost peacekeeping has become part of the national identity and something to be really proud of as a relatively peaceful internal nation. And, you know, you guys probably remember going up to Parliament Hill for Northern Lights during the summer, and they seem to have taken it out of the narrative this year, but they definitely had it in last year showing clips and showing it as you know, really respectable military service. And it seemed, you know, it was like this era of Canadian engagement in the world. And I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, just do it to do it because it's part of the national identity, right? But it still leaves a question of, you know, will it still have that same attribution, that same feel for people if this kind of gets changed or taken out of the equation to fit different contexts. I don't, I'm mm -hmm. not Canadian. You guys would probably have a better oh, insight to right. it than I do. <laughs> yeah, I forgot I, about This that. is an outside perspective. I think I can know? explain the difference in the Northern Lights show. Uh, I don't, I don't want to come across as too mean to the past government, but they were always more interested in pushing sort of the martial aspects of Canadian history. They were really excited about celebrating the anniversary of the war of 1812, for instance, and 
I don't know. That seems a little awkward when the U.S. is our friend now. We're we're all excited about the time we burned down the White House. <laughs> and I mean, did, we didn't really win that war, but... Uh, well, it depends who you ask. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> well, right? But but you, you would go to the War Museum, like, in the months and years before uh, the last election, and they were really putting in a big effort to push the history of the War of 1812 at the War Museum. It was... A little much sometimes. Like I, I feel like it might come across as a bit insensitive, but we were getting Canadian mili- military history shoved down our throats. And I think too, part of it was national pride, but I think also that maybe the Harper government was more interested in, well, taking a more active role in the world stage on that front. Maybe not through the UN necessarily, but... Mm-hmm. Bridget, I think you raise a good point, and Mark, you're speaking to that a little bit. In my mind, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that with the with the previous conservative government, we we moved away from, tr- if you want to call it, traditional Canadian policy on peacekeeping. Um, if you look at it in, just in terms of the amount of, of of people that we've committed to peacekeeping operations in the last 15 years, it, we've seen a significant decrease. If and this comes back to the more broad theme of of that keeps being touted in Canadian foreign policy that Canada's back that with the re-election of Liberal government Canada's back but is is Canada back are we trying to 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 with these commitments for peacekeeping are we trying to relive uh, an aspect of of Canadian identity that no longer exists have we moved away from that um, or do you feel do you feel like peacekeeping remains uh, an integral part of the Canadian identity. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure how much peacekeeping was ever really part of the Canadian identity, so to speak. I mean, we're, we tend to be heavily associated with it in popular culture just because, you know, it's Lester B. Pearson, who who was our ambassador to the UN at the time, who proposed sending UN peacekeepers, or creating a peacekeeping force, rather, to deal with the Suez crisis back in the 50s, and we've kind of been tied to that since, but... I'm not an expert on this. I'm not sure how much we've necessarily contributed to peacekeeping operations over the years. We've played some role, but I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say it's been necessarily a decisive role in any conflict in particular. Well, and if you look at global peacekeeping, too, you have a lot of other countries that contribute significantly more boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, out of, I think the AU really promotes a lot of programs that feed into peacekeeping missions and so do other countries such as Pakistan so it's it's kind of uh it's not necessarily the number of boots you can put on the ground I think Canada's trying to say but it's the expertise that it has that it really thinks it can offer and it may go hand in hand with kind of Canada's really good reputation for soft diplomacy mm-hmm. you know using a lot of nuanced and usually back channel ways to get things done and to get people to mediating tables and it kind of feeds into that that global narrative you know when someone outside of Canada comes up to you you know wherever you may be and says oh like I like so and so or I've heard of this and that I think it it still lends to a good reputation but there's there seems to be a lot of argument out there with all the instability in the world you know is this the most appropriate way for us to reassert ourselves after kind kind of a, a lapse in in these areas i think it was really interesting what you said mark about you know how much has canada actually kind of contributed let's say on the ground for for peacekeeping but the you know still having this 
reputation for being peacekeepers in the public eye. And and whether or not that actually, I think we were talking about this in, in our peacekeeping uh, episode, whether or not that actually influences policy, because now with the whole Canada's back thing, that is part of that. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of do you think that's because in Canada, in the Canadian public's eye, we are supposed to be in that role? It could be. I mean, like, maybe I'm going to be a bit cynical here, but it could partially be that the government realizes the Canadian public wants Canada to participate more in peacekeeping operations. They want to keep winning elections. So best way to do that, give the public what they want. And if that means time for us to step up to the plate, help build peace in conflict zones around the world, so be it. Right. And I think that's where some of the controversy or that feeds into some of the controversy of going to somewhere like like Mali which is super high risk and it's like why are we doing this are we doing this because we want to appease you know for the if we, are we doing this for for voters are we doing this for a good reason right and maybe it's one of those instances where this narrative is actually a lot bigger than the mission on the ground sure. is in terms of our in terms of Canadian contribution to you know, creating peace in the, in the area. Every, everything is interconnected, right? Um, well, before we leave this topic, uh, we want to cut to one more clip. And uh, unless you've been hiding under a rock for, I don't know, the last two years, two and a half years, you know that we recently, our neighbors to the south, had an election and uh, we have a new president. Um, and no discussion of international affairs would be complete uh, without acknowledging that we have a new president and the uh, so this clip is, is, is examining or discussing the possible effect that a Trump presidency uh, may have on the balance of power in the Security Council. What could the effects of a Trump presidency have on uh, the Security Council activities? And is it possible that perhaps more, uh, a, a more isolationist stance might actually leave room for China or Russia to exert more influence in that body? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I'll start at the end point. China traditionally um, is uh, a permanent member who doesn't exert influence overtly Mm -hmm. on the Security Council. Um, They're very careful about what they, um, about the decisions they make, but they tend to make them quietly in the background. They often ride on Russia's coattails. You know, Russia is the big uh, high profile veto. And then by the way, China wants that result too, but they're just happy that Russia is doing it um, and they don't have to um, front up um, in that way. The, so I don't think it would necessarily create more opening um, in the council, um, but it is an open question about what the U.S. is going to be um, thinking about the United Nations under a Trump presidency. The choice for ambassador is very interesting. Um, it is, um, of all the people he could have chosen in some ways, um, the most optimistic choice for um, the possibility that the United States might look favorably, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. in the context of a Trump presidency, um, on uh, the United Nations and the United Nations activities. Um, but I don't foresee a whole lot of change in the dynamics of the Security Council itself. So, Mitch, I noticed when you were introducing the club, and I'm not picking on you, <laughs> but you were saying, we have a new president, we have a new president. And I just think that's a reflection of how much of an impact, I know Mitch didn't mean <laughs> to say that, but how much of an, <laughs> or did he? Uh, no, it, it's, I think it's a reflection 
of an impact that this election is having on international affairs and how much kind of even as Canadians, we are now feeling this. And I'm sure people all over the world are feeling this. Yeah, absolutely. I think just I mean, the term leader of the free world that's often anointed on the on the president of the United States. I, I, I think that's that's, you know, merited or warranted in the sense that that even as a Canadian, you know, we have a prime minister here. Um, but if I were to think of the president, I automatically certainly think of the, the president of the United States. Right. Uh, so, yeah, Bridget, why don't we start with you? Any thoughts on on what uh, Dr. Bolden said about kind of, you know, the question of what is a Trump presidency going to or how is a Trump presidency going to see the U.N. or the Security Council I think it'll be really interesting because I remember I'm originally from Massachusetts and when I go back home, you can go into Boston and talk to people and hear one thing and there's a high opinion of the UN, but you can go to rural areas and areas that traditionally voted for this upcoming administration saying, you know, feeling extremely removed from all of it, international affairs, the UN, and seeing it you know, as basically just throwing money at something that's really being ineffectual. You know, you you see what's going on on the television and you wonder why this can't all be worked out. And we obviously know it's an extremely complicated scenario with a lot of actors. It's very political. But it, I don't know, it really, I think there's a lot of disconnect. And I wonder if this current or this coming administration to be brought in in January is going to have a sort of, you know, a real withdrawal from the UN, even though he, you know, wants to appoint who he does, which, you know, came as a surprise to a lot of people, is, you know, is she going to get the kind of support that she needs on the other end, you know, creating even a resolution or any sort of agreement and bringing it back and getting it through Congress? And I think there's really going to be a lot of play at work there to to see if you know are we are we going to walk away from the UN or make it somehow more fragile yeah I have to say that uh, actually Trump choosing Nikki Haley as uh, his UN ambassador kind of surprised me in that it it seems to be one of the few bright spots in his appointment so far I was honestly expecting him to pick Newt Gingrich no. or, or Rudy or Rudy Giuliani <laughs> no. or or even dare I say it John Bolton no. to oh, he'd be a, he'd be a repeat true. choice. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that John Bolton he was appointed in recess, which means oh, that yeah. which means that the Senate didn't even confirm oh, him. For it, that. it says something that even uh, Bush era Republicans uh, were yeah. not fans of his, yeah. and he then proceeded to prove it uh, repeatedly throughout his time at the UN. So. Sending Haley, I think, was a good choice rather than sending, say, the three human attack dogs I've just mentioned. Just, just for the record, I think this has ruled us out for any position in a Trump administration. So. Oh, yeah, I oh. Think so. well, that is unfortunate. I, I'm, I'm sure that, not being Americans, the majority of us were already far out of uh, contention for that. I don't know. I was I in agriculture. <laughs> well, considering the qualifications of the people who he's picking, you might still have a shot. <laughs> yeah, I think I think your 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 point to, to Nikki Haley uh, is 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 a good one in the sense that you know she's certainly she's certainly well respected mm-hmm. um, as a governor, um, and uh, I think she 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 brings with her a positive 
conservative message. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think her lack of of real, f- I mean, obviously, you know, she's the governor of an important state, um, but her lack of, of detailed foreign policy experience may be, may be a bit concerning. Um, but I was just thinking, I, given what's happening in Syria right now in, in Aleppo, I know mm-hmm. that um, over social media, people were broadcasting, um, is her name, is it Samantha Power, who's the current ambassador? Yes. yes. She was basically shaming members of the UN Security Council, you know, we know who she was shaming, Russia, amongst others, for, for, for not doing enough or basically uh, impeding uh, action, appropriate action, um, if you wanted to, 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 to consider the responsibility to protect um, uh, uh, on the, uh, the, the, the Security Council. Uh, she was doing well. Uh, she, that, was very, that was very passionate and that was very responsible. And I don't know, I, I can't envision Nikki Haley... Um, uh, Speaking on behalf of a Trump administration, taking that same kind of same kind of um, tact, I guess, um, uh, in addressing other members of the UN Security Council. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to. I'm not surprised that Samantha Power spoke out so forcefully. I mean, before she was UN ambassador, she was really well known for writing a book called "The Problem from Hell" that was about failure of the U.S. to intervene in genocides in the past. So this seems like the kind of thing she would take a passionate stand. Uh, on here i do agree that it's a problem that nikki haley doesn't have foreign policy experience but my my, when i said i thought she was the best choice this was out of a bad bunch here i mean yeah she doesn't have the foreign policy experience we'd like but she is leagues ahead of the, the other possible contenders in terms of basic tact i suppose you could say yeah so uh Lots of good discussion. We're going to take a quick break. uh, And when we come back, we will uh, uh, continue our discussion on topics covered at the uh, conference that was hosted earlier this month. to Policy Talks, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. All right, and we are now back from break. Moving on to our next security panel topic, Hotspot, EU stability and the migration crisis. And uh, for this one, we had an interview with Dr. Martin Geiger. Now, uh, in the interview, uh, Dr. Geiger was not able to provide us with a bio, so I'll just give you a quick recap. Um, Dr. Geiger joined Carleton University in 2014 as an assistant professor of politics of human migration and mobility. He holds a PhD and a German diploma in geography from the University of Bonn in Germany. Uh, His research, teaching, and writings focus on migration and mobility from an interdisciplinary perspective. So we'll jump right into our first clip, uh, and this is Dr. Geiger talking about the nationalist populist sentiment um, that uh, is looming, kind of, uh, or looming in impending elections in the European Union. So we've seen with Brexit uh, and in a number of other countries in the EU a rise of nationalist mm-hmm. populist sentiment 
So do you see that continuing, growing stronger? Mm -hmm. We have some elections coming up that might be quite uh, decisive mm -hmm. in this movement. Mm -hmm. So do you have a comment on that? Unfortunately, I think the, the topic of refugee movement, but also immigration as such, also, I mean, um, the presence simply of uh, immigrant populations, even if it's second or third generations of people with migrant background, I think this will be uh, a, a huge topic uh, in, in all the elections that we're going to see uh, in, in the European Union in the next year. So we have also elections in Germany and, and Merkel is running for her fourth term as chancellor. So in Germany, um, interestingly, while the media discussion, um, so that the media image was really um, in a way blurred and, and a bit like uh, so definitely there's a, a right-wing uh, momentum, there is a right-wing party uh, that has emerged, but I don't really see that Merkel will lose uh, the election. I think she will win the election. It is just like what kind of constellation in a, in a coalition government she will uh, be able to build. Right, um, but there is definitely this momentum. Uh, it is for me much more concerning what will happen in France or in other countries of the European Union, and also um, really speaking about the Visegrad countries and and former East, uh, well, former satellite states of the Soviet Union. What will happen in the next few years? And um, you you may have heard about the Polish government and uh, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, and all these governments, right, what they decide actually to do about immigration, because if there is no solidarity anymore left, uh, we might actually ask uh, what is the future of the European Union as such in, in this area. So that was Dr. Geiger talking about this kind of never-ending topic of immigration, migration that we've been talking about for a very long time now and kind of the right-wing party take on that and their momentum using that topic. Any initial thoughts? Yeah, I got to agree. My main worry is about France at this point and not not so not solely in terms of immigration but also in terms of its future in the EU as well because uh Marine Le Pen, the head of uh, the uh, National Front party in France, the far right party, which has been doing fairly well in polls, seems uh, to be uh, planning a sort of Frexit, if you will, if, if she wins the election. And I, I realize that everyone's tired of Brexit now, but this is the world we live in. So <laughs> I, I do feel that if France goes, the EU is suddenly going to be on a lot rockier ground than it was already after Brexit happened. You know, I mean, the referendum, I should say, but it's still in the EU. But And... It, I, yeah, if France leaves the EU, I'd start thinking at that point that its days are numbered. And as it is, it's kind of on shaky territory already. And there's, a, there's immigrants are playing a big role here, as it turns out, since now a, the big part of the debate in the EU is literally, do we let refugees in? Do we let in more immigrants? Do we want freedom of movement? I mean, a, and as we've seen this past June, the British seem to have rejected that, or at least a good chunk of the voting population did show up for the referendum, thanks that way. If it's the same throughout other European states, we're going to find out sooner or later when they turn out for the polls for their elections. It just so happens we're going to find out with France first, since their election is February or March, definitely sometime this upcoming spring, but... I mean, in Germany, 
Merkel has been taking something of a beating in the polls, but I think I think in the end, and maybe this is totally inaccurate, I'm not that familiar with the German domestic politics, she will ultimately pull through because she's proven to be a fairly consistent leader for the most part. People in Germany have been doing fairly well under her tenure that they, in all likelihood, I think at least a plurality of the voting population is going to want things to stay that way. It, like If there are, say, more incidents involving immigrants, and already we're hearing people say that uh, the incident yesterday where a truck was crashed into a market in Berlin is being referred to as radical terrorist attack, and ISIS has taken credit for it. How true this is, we don't know yet. It's still too soon. If there are more attacks like that, then... I would think Merkel's future looks a lot more uncertain. I mean, whether more of this kind of incident will happen before the German election, hopefully they won't. But, you know, who knows anymore? And I think it kind of leads into this whole real worry of EU fragmentation. You know, if this, you know... Um, move away from a centralized Europe is really going to come to fruition. My, it's weird that migration is the issue that cruxes it all, right? And people's burden sharing in terms of accepting and resettling refugees. And when you look at, you know, the country's responsibility to host refugees, Germany has taken a lot more than any other nation in the region. So it's funny to see Hungary's, you know, leader Orban really coming to the forefront and using a lot of rhetoric, Marie Le Pen, same way. I just don't know if the EU, it really worries me. I don't know if the EU is strong enough to really hold together if France were to leave because France and Germany really were the duo holding it all together with the EC from the beginning and I don't know it's a crazy time well yeah if you want to envision like the EU as a as, as resting on on you know pillars of importance that of course all members of the EU are important but okay okay you take you, you take you take Britain away you take hypothetically you take France away you take Germany away uh, Germany away I mean economically speaking oh. alone if you look at just on the economic front I mean what's left oh, at that th- point that'll so. be a disaster I mean with Britain, in terms of the politics, it's a bit iffier because it's always been a bit more reluctant to be part of the EU. I mean, they refuse to adopt the single currency like the rest of the Union, and maybe sticking to the pound helped in terms of financial crises. And they still drive on the other side of the road, too. With those sick monsters, I mean. <laughs> but, but, but in terms of the politics, I think for a lot of Europeans, it's sort of like, well, even for the British, I'm not sure how European they necessarily saw themselves to begin with. It's sort of, it, I think it's part of the whole island mentality. They've always been able to be a bit more standoffish about continental politics. And now they've taken it to what they consider to be the next logical step, which is get out of European politics more or less entirely. And for for you members, it, it's a blow, but... It's not nearly as severe a blow as France or Germany leaving would be because those have historically been sort of the big power players in Europe. 
and I kind of feel that where they go, Europe will end up following. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is wildly off base, but if if anything would cement sort of the rise of far right governments in Europe, it would be France or Germany going that route. So obviously, I'm hoping that you know those parties in upcoming elections don't win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a question on that about yeah. what you guys think. So. For Brexit, I mean, it was relatively close. There was a lot, I mean, after Brexit happened or, or the referendum was done, there was, what was it? It was like... It was it, something like, I want to say 52-48. Yeah, something like so that. It, what are you thinking in terms of, of France? Like, do you foresee there being more of a landslide uh, based on how Le Pen is doing or or any insights you might have gathered? It's hard to say. I mean, you have to remember with Brexit that the referendum itself was a bit troublesome. It, it was a fairly low voter turnout. And there's. it seems like a lot of people who voted yes didn't actually expect uh, that side to get a majority and suddenly seem to be regretting it within the next few weeks. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, let's face it, a big part of the yes campaign's promises were basically lies like promising to take money being sent to the eu each week and then taking it to healthcare, and you know afterwards they denied they ever said it yeah and the bus signs yeah just just ignore the big bus signs (laughs) everything we've said on television yeah so i i don't know like it's i wouldn't say that a french referendum on EU membership would necessarily turn out the same way. There's a lot of different factors. Obviously, the the fact that they're, they're actually in Europe, so to speak, rather than an island off to the side, might affect the mentality of voters. There is also a fairly big immigrant population in France. I mean, there, okay, there is in the UK as well, but France has always had this sort of melting pot view of immigration where it's it's sort of like try to assimilate everyone everyone's equal a far-right election is going to disrupt that obviously because well part of their message is you know they are that people aren't all the same and despite what they may say they do target minority groups in terms of their policies and that some people might end up sort of voting against whatever the National Front would propose, basically just out of sheer ideological opposition to their perspective. And whether that would add up to, say, a majority that prevents French exit from the EU would speculation at this point, obviously, but and we'll just have to wait and see. I, I hate to say this, but we'll just have to No, see. that's exactly right. There are a lot of uncertainties ahead, and there are a lot of big questions on this kind of fragmentation we've been talking about and what that's going to result in. But continuing on this theme of migration, let's move on to the next clip by uh, Dr. Geiger as he talks a l- more about migration and some possible solutions to this, this kind of movement of populism in the EU. 
that we would be seeing uh, up to a million refugees mm -hmm. coming in the next year. Mm -hmm. So do you see that fueling an increase in this nationalist populist movement? Definitely, if um, there is no solution actually found, and I don't really think there will be a solution uh, that is there will be definitely no easy solution for it, but I actually are really uh, pessimist uh, that, that there is a solution that could be found in, in, the, in the medium and uh, short run. Um, and because we have to take care of these elections now, right? And they are just um, soon approaching. I don't think there will be a quick solution. Um, I think the EU-Turkey deal, and I presented today some, some numbers, uh, is almost still a bit like more symbolic, I would say. It's really concerning of the human rights uh, implications. And of course, we really have to think about that, right? And it really affects the lives and uh, uh, of, of refugees and migrants that try to come to Europe that deal at, or that arrangement with Turkey. And there might be other deals that will be ma made with other countries. Uh, very concerning right now is uh, the plan actually to conclude such an agreement also with Egypt, but also to return people that are rejected in their asylum claim back to even Afghanistan and yeah, in a, in a way even declaring Afghanistan as a safe country, which is very concerning. Uh, yes, concerning indeed. I'd never, I never thought in, in, in recent times Afghanistan would be considered a safe country. Um, thoughts? Mm, yeah, I've, I've got to agree. Afghanistan designated as a safe country. I'm not sure what that says either. We really don't care that much anymore or somehow things are getting so bad in Syria that Afghanistan looks a lot better by comparison, but it doesn't paint a pretty picture either way. I, I do have to agree this populism does seem to be driven by immigration. I said... I, I jumped the gun a bit earlier saying that, but there there does seem to be a sort of fear of the other that's uh, propelling politics in Europe more to the right, and you know, seems to have done uh, the same in uh, the U.S. as well this uh, past November. In terms of solutions, it's hard to... I mean, there, <laughs> you would have to maybe try to, I suppose, educate people more, like to show that, that those kinds of fears are unfounded, but I'm not sure necessarily how you would go about doing that. And a lot of this is founded in sort of like a lack of knowledge about, well, say foreign cultures, to put it in one way. They, when people are, are necessarily, I don't want to say ignorant necessarily, but they lack knowledge about it. They're going to probably come to the worst case assumption like fear is just a big motivator for seeking security here and those populist movements again including far-right parties like the national front ragging on them a lot i know but they they're offering a sense of security to people who feel insecure and and to some degree there, there's good reason for it there has been a rise in terrorist attacks over the past two years now wow hard, hard to think about that now but they there is some reason for them to be afraid of immigrants of a very select few and for a lot of people tend to ignore the fact that a lot of these attacks have been committed by people born in those countries the the, the guys who carried out the charlie hebdo attacks in paris last year they were they were born in france a lot of a lot of these attacks are carried out by people 
from immigrant backgrounds, but they were born and raised in those countries. They feel disaffected by politics there. So this sort of populism is going to create a self-perpetuating cycle where these attacks happen, people are worried, there's going to be sort of more effort to limit immigration, maybe, maybe create lists, say, of people from a certain religious or ethnic background. God forbid we go down that route again. And then pe- people from those backgrounds are going to feel disaffected with the majority. It's sort of like they'll think, maybe these attacks are justified. I am being repressed. I should do something about this. And it's really hard to say how you would necessarily break out of that kind of the cycle. I mean, this is a really long-term issue we're looking at here. You have to look at a long-term solution, and I'm not sure what that would be. But could, and of course, it's easy for me to talk about this stuff sitting here in the studio yeah. with 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 <laughs> nothing but a microphone and no responsibility. Um, <laughs> so say we all. But but when we talk about about solutions, and we talk about if you want to. You know the, the 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 crisis, this migration crisis, all of these people fleeing. Well, why are they fleeing? You know, if we want to take the, the the long view and expand expand the viewpoint here, you know, why are we not doing more? And by we, I mean collectively. Why are we not doing more to address? I mean, these the majority of Syrian refugees. I'm sure if you ask them, they don't want to be outside of Syria. They, they that Syria is their home. They have to be. They have to leave Syria because it's simply unsafe. Should these countries be doing more? by countries should european countries should western countries be doing more to address what is happening in syria uh, as a means to ultimately stop the flow of migrants into the european union i i think so but we're we're faced with after years of fighting in afghanistan and iraq and sort of being trapped in a big mess of a quagmire in the middle east i think a lot of countries that could take action about Syria just don't have the political will to anymore. They, they've they gotten too caught up in the fighting these past conflicts. They don't want to keep doing it. It's cost them way too much money, way too many lives. And now that Russia is openly backing the regime, it's sort of like we don't want to cause problems with Russia now because they're sort of becoming the big bad guys again. Not to the same degree that they were during the Cold War, maybe, when it was a legitimate superpower opponent to the U.S., but it's still a fairly powerful country in its own right uh, these days. And I feel like, to your point, Mitch, it's one of those areas where other countries don't want to face the political ramifications of getting involved in foreign crises. So you see the U.S. kind of reel against that quite a few times in history and even early in World War II not jumping in until the very last minute because knowing the political ramifications at home being too afraid to do something and I think that really flows through to Syria today especially after the invasion of Iraq and saying you know do we really want to be seen as that country again that created a power vacuum and tried to put something that supplanted in that really is not making Iraq very much safer. In fact, it's kind of letting it fragment itself even farther. And, you know, there are a lot of people when you talk to them who say, you know, living under Saddam Hussein was not a walk in the park, but 
you know. He, under his suppression, everything was expected. And it's kind of this, again, this idea of international instability because no one really knows who's on first and who's supposed to be stepping up and doing what. And I think, you know, we have this kind of, a little bit of a lack of international leadership in jumping in to these foreign crises, even though the UN as an institution has been brought together and said, you know, it's our responsibility as a collective to provide peace. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I mentioned this earlier and I only bring this up because I took a course in this. So I feel (laughs) like I have a little bit of knowledge in this, but this idea of the responsibility to protect, you know, after Rwanda, after what happened in the Balkans, Never again. Never mm-hmm. again. That's that's a term that's used. Never again. We're never going to let this happen again. Internationally, as a community, we have a responsibility. States have a responsibility to protect their own citizens. When they fail to do that, collectively, we have a responsibility to step in and ensure that these citizens are protected. Um, and you know, if we look at the situation in Syria, I think, I think, in, at least in my estimation, there's a there's a clear uh, lack of of taking responsibility um, from the international community. Um, looking forward. Uh, on this topic, we have one more clip um, uh, talking about the predictions on migration and security for 2017. So we'll conclude here now mm-hmm. with uh, maybe your predictions on the security of the EU in the face of this uh, refugee crisis mm-hmm. in the next year. Yeah, what I find a bit concerning is always that there's directly a link always built between migration and security, right? And I think this is wrong. Uh, We start on the wrong foot here because I think it would be uh, very helpful first for European populations, especially Central and Eastern European states, actually to communicate that just migration is is just a normal fact of life. It is actually a normal process. And uh, there might be some risks associated with migration, but it is actually, yeah, 99% or whatever uh, actually are not, uh, yeah, with, with risks uh, associated, right? Um, and I think we can learn here quite a bit from uh, Canada and other traditional immigration countries, right? And how they manage migration and what kind of openness they have demonstrated over decades of, uh, and, and well, and just to balance actually uh, some, some of these uh, impressions and to get people away from these populist movements. But I think this is something you have to start probably in schools, in kindergartens already, to just promote this. Uh, We are equal and, uh, yeah, there is no discrimination. There should be no discrimination and so on. So that actually brings it back to what you were saying, Mark, about, you know, how do we educate or the need to educate people on on immigration, migration, and and not necessarily to homogenize them as... Well, as terrorists, I yeah. guess, or as a as a whole threat, and, and it's interesting what he was saying. You know, this is a normal thing with with associated risks, and and it is definitely not being treated so. Of course, it's it, we're in more of an exaggerated situation now mm-hmm. with with the Syrian crisis. But uh, yeah, any thoughts on that? I've heard kind of in like informal conversations that if you were to sit down with anyone in the intelligence community and you say, you know, what are the factors you look at in terms of deeming someone a security threat, these things should not and would never come into their their field of vision at this point in, in how we know these attacks to be carried out because it blinds you 
to so many other more relevant factors. And I think, you know, unemployment being one of them, you have areas of like really like sullen economic depression and a lack of opportunity. And it leads back to what Mark was saying about a disenfranchisement of certain minority communities, wherever they may be, that can funnel into these issues. So focusing on race, ethnicity in terms of migration as a way of assessing security threats in kind of like a layman's way is really not beneficial at all and kind of creates this this loophole cycle like you were talking about. And I do have to agree with Professor Geiger in that the probably education at a young age aspect. In if you if you take sort of voting patterns in say Brexit and the U.S. election as sort of you know indicators of how people feel about immigration, this is obviously not a very scientific way of going about it. There is sort of a pattern that. The groups that voted in favor of Brexit, in favor of Trump, they tended to be, well, the older citizens, shall we say. Younger voters tend to be more in favor of staying within the EU, voting in in favor of Hillary Clinton. Like, it seems more like sort of the discriminatory attitude we're seeing these days, to put it bluntly, is... A phenomenon that seems to be occurring, especially among older voters in particular. So it may just be, it could be that within a decade or two, we're going to see a lot less of this. Maybe we won't. I mean, it's considering how polling's been failing the past few elections, who knows anymore how accurate it is. But I'd like to think that this is sort of really the last gasp of sort of a dying mentality. And in, like I said, a decade or two, we'll see a lot less of this. But obviously, that's what we'd consider maybe way too long. It's not really helping us now. Well, one thing I do wonder about in terms of European continental security is that it's kind of like a roundhouse cycle. If migration is going to be the cruxing issue that you know, leads France to pull away from the EU and leads Germany to pull away from the EU, Hungary and other countries. Is that in turn because the EU is formulated in mind of economic, kind of an economic security as well as actual like security security? Is it is a fragmented EU going to make the continent less secure? Obviously, from a U.S. standpoint, They'd much rather see the continent pulled together on a policy base than they were to see it fragmented because then you're dealing with all these different countries trying to get, you know, trying to get things moving in terms of a NATO stance or in terms of all these other security measures that have been pulled in. Yeah, I have to agree with that viewpoint. If nothing else, it's going to be a lot easier for EU member states to coordinate among each other, be able to say share intelligence that they may deem relevant, police cooperation, border security cooperation. All that works much better if they're part of the same supranational organization. If they're all fragmented, they don't have that much reason to cooperate with each other on those issues beyond like really pressing urgent security matters on little everyday issues. They're not necessarily going to feel it's worth it. Like, It'll be someone else's business rather than ours as EU members, so to speak. 
Those are some interesting thoughts from both of you. And now before moving on to the next topic, we're going to take a little bit of a break. You're listening to Policy Talks, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. All right, we are back from our break, and now we're moving on to Dr. Christopher Sands speaking on President-elect Donald Trump and the fate of the U.S. as a superpower. So if you could just briefly introduce yourself and your current uh, research area of focus. Well, uh, I'm an American, originally from Detroit, and uh, I took an interest in Canada-U.S. relations early on because I was interested in international political economy, uh, particularly in integrating regions. And when I was in school, the cool kids were looking at the European Union and looking ahead to the single European Act in what we used to call EC92. Uh, but I was interested in what we were doing in North America, which seemed both further advanced and yet also under-institutionalized and not nearly as well known. So uh, even today, now that I'm, I'm an academic, I, I look at some of the same issues and some of the policy issues around that, whether it's border security or regulatory alignment or, or trade disputes. So your panel discussion today, which was fabulous, by the thank way, you, thank you, thank uh, you, was on the changes following Trump's election, uh, obviously to President of the United States of America, and what implications this might have in a variety of areas. Uh, so actually, your panel mate today mentioned that Trump's form of populism, which is a big reason uh, a lot of people have attributed for his election. Uh, is actually a fake populism. And you also mentioned that uh, his form of populism might be somewhat different from what we've seen around the world, such as uh, with Brexit in the uh, UK and in other areas across Europe. So could you comment a little bit on how Trump's form of populism might uh, be similar or different from what we've seen around the world today? One of the um, uh, people who's taught at Johns Hopkins, where I teach now and is now at Stanford, um, is Frank Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama is well known for his writing about the end of history. And there was a period after the end of the Cold War when uh, the, it seemed as though we had reached this consensus that democracy was the right way to be governed, that free markets were the, the proper direction for the economy, and that having achieved a global consensus, now we simply had to refine it. And it was the end of an era. And ever since that moment, it's always dangerous to declare the end of an era, people have argued about whether that really is right. And what I think that Donald Trump has represented in the United States, his political movement has been energizing people in the United States who felt very much left out of that consensus. Now, I don't think it's because they disagreed with democracy or the direction that the country was going, but they felt that they were being asked, as, as poorer people, as working people who had two, three jobs, to pay the highest price for getting us there. So on trade liberalization, there's no doubt that uh, the U.S. has grown wealthier since NAFTA or even Canada used free trade, certainly since the GATT became the WTO and so on. Trade liberalization has been very good for the U.S. However, there were a number of people who felt that they 
they lost. They had manufacturing jobs that were given off to robots, or they had low-skilled jobs that were easy to export to China or other places. They did benefit because goods became cheaper, but that doesn't mean any of you have lost your income. They've struggled to adapt to globalization, to a more service-oriented economy, especially if they're older. They're tied to a mortgage, which is underwater because of the housing crisis. They don't have the flexibility. And this is so different than, say, a college-age person who has a good education and can adapt sort of to whatever the world throws at them. They're always very good. But when you're older, it's harder. And I think this has led to a lot of resentment. And this election in the United States was very much a rejection of what was seen as a smug Washington establishment, which I guess I could include myself in, who seemed to be doing things without a concern for the people who are suffering. And I think that is the way in which Donald Trump's populism is, this, is similar to the Brexit discussions, where people felt that Brussels' decision-making was not accountable to democratically elected officials and was indifferent to the consequences for the British economy. It's similar to what we've seen in other, in other parts of the world as well. Where, my, where our panel today um, kind of went back and forth on this is, is about the more um, dark side of populism, the idea that, that they're angry people and that the angry people want to do some violence to the other people. And you see this a lot in the U.S. Is the support for Donald Trump by um, white Americans, particularly white male Americans, a reaction to feminism, a reaction to affirmative action? A sense that it isn't that they've lost, but they resent the winners, and those winners aren't all elites, and they, and this is sort of class warfare, uh, the vicious battles of the proletariat that uh, that Marx uh, predicted. I don't think it is. I think that the U.S. is in a situation where uh, Republicans were acting very much like the Democrats in Washington, not so much at the state level. At the state level, you had politicians who were much closer to the people, but at the federal level, Washington seemed to be very out of touch and particularly in the Obama years, President Obama um, came in at the end of the financial crisis that was very tough for the rest of the country. But I can tell you this in the um, communities around Washington, D.C., our housing prices actually went up. Uh, because people were tied to government jobs, we were sort of recession-proof. And so we were doing very well. At one point, I think eight of the 10 richest counties in the entire country were all contiguous with Washington, D.C. And if you see the Hunger Games or uh, or was it the, the Maze Runner, there's all this apocalyptic fiction which kind of underscores the point of a snooty elite that's making everyone dance for them for entertainment, but they're suffering. And I think popular culture sort of warned us that this moment was coming and that Donald Trump is a, a jerk and kind of a bully is, is sort of secondary. He was the person that people rallied around because they wanted to smash the system. So a Trump America, <laughs> what do we think about this? I suppose I still have trouble accepting it to a degree. I mean, now that the Electoral College has confirmed, yes, Trump is going to be president come January 20th, I've grown to accept it a bit more, but I suppose I'm betraying my liberal elite views here that uh, I don't agree with, well, virtually everything he said, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's amazing. Usually I manage to find something to agree about with a given politician, but I got squad here. But yet, I mean, that message, and 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 Dr. Sands alluded to it. I mean, that the message that Trump sold, what he ran on, regardless of how you feel about it, that spoke to enough people. Now, granted, he didn't win the popular vote, but that doesn't really matter in American elections. Uh, he 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 did enough, and that that message spoke enough to people 
uh, particularly in the Midwest, right, that, that decided this election in the Electoral College. So, well, what yeah. I kind of wonder now is given the cabinet picks and you have a lot of very, very wealthy you know, people that he wants to appoint in his administration. I wonder how his voting block feels about it, because if I understand the whole idea of feeling very detached from the central federal government in the U.S., but how how are these picks somehow making the case that he is going to kind of bring the middle class up again? Well, you know, he did promise to drain the swamp in D.C. from all the lobbyists and corporate cronies. It's, and he is doing that. It's just that he's draining it into cabinet. <laughs> just putting it in a different pool. Yeah. Mark Hyken, speechwriter for Chuck Schumer. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, I've definitely pulled that one off the internet somewhere, mm. uh, like 50 times at least. <laughs> I'm far from the first person to come up with that joke. No, absolutely. But I think it's, uh, to your point, I think it's, it's there's there's got to be a certain sense of irony in that of all the people, I suppose they didn't really have a choice, but of all the people to represent the plight of your average, you know, manufacturing middle-class worker, it's Donald Trump, multi-billionaire who made his fortune uh, off the backs of some of these people. And I think a big part of it is, yes, there's this, there's a lot of people that that he reached and felt disenfranchised or were very frustrated with the current system. And and I think uh, maybe this is brought up later, but he really dominated the media mm -hmm. and he really took advantage of this kind of disconnect that was happening regardless of regardless of providing misinformation or making kind of not necessarily correct connections between you know an issue and and a policy that is that is currently in play um, I think a lot of it was that media domination mm. and Looking at in retrospect over the course of of the election, I wonder personally, in terms of voter mentality, how much Trump supporters responded to his message as opposed to how much they responded to to him and what what he represents. So, I mean, it's no secret then that in our culture, you know, wealth is is valued and, and it, it commands a certain degree of respect. And so I wonder how much people just looked at Donald Trump as the multi-billionaire, as the braggadocious individual, and said, you know, you know, he may be a jerk, he may be a bully, and you know, he may be lying, but he was successful. If I value success in terms of wealth, he was successful. He he created the successful company, so I want, I want him to do what he did for Trump, Trump organization to do the same for America, um, and so I'll just follow him blindly because he's rich. So therefore, he must. He must know what he's doing. And I think added on to that was this kind of level of relatability. Hmm. Like, relative to Hillary, I think a lot of people felt like, okay, yes, he's a billionaire, but almost maybe looked at how he, how his rhetoric and how he spoke and kind of felt like, I've heard someone say, you know, I think a lot of people felt like they could sit down and have a beer with him because he tried to relate to a lot of people. I, I don't know. Whenever I hear that about a politician, it's like, if if I could sit down and have a beer with him, I think he's the least suited person to the job. I don't want him um, to be just like a casual beer drinking guy. I, I, I want hope, to, I want I to hope be that like, in my future, like people don't say, oh, I had a beer with her and I really don't <laughs> think she's appropriate for but, this position. Okay, let me rephrase that. I, I feel <laughs> like a one beer. I don't know? think approachability <laughs> should be the top consideration for electing someone. Obviously, again, people don't clearly don't hold that view necessarily in the States, 
but I would say, are they competent? Are they level-headed? Are they likely to lose their temper and decide to launch a nuclear missile at North Korea? Those, those would be the things I'd take into consideration more than, can I sit down and have a beer with this guy, or I suppose in Donald Trump's case, since he's a heat leveler, can I sit down and have a taco with him? Right. But I mean, that's identity politics. And I mean, first of all, to the point about Trump being someone you can have a beer with, the guy would eat KFC with a fork and knife. So that is not somebody that you can sit and have a beer with. He clearly doesn't know how to live the average life. The the man of the people image is a bit flawed. But I mean, let's not pretend that 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 doesn't happen here in Canada, too. Let's just look at the last election. If you if you put up, you know, let's let's actually go back to 2011. Who would you most like to have a beer with? Mike Ignatieff, Stephen Harper or Jack Layton? Right. Jack Layton. And all of a sudden we had this orange wave and all of this. That was on the back of Jack Layton. Say what you will. The NDP success in Quebec, that was all Jack Layton. Oh, yeah. Um, and then look to to the election we had last year. I mean, Justin Trudeau. Selfies. The, the, the red wave exactly. just got <laughs> all of that. But it's just, I mean, orange. what Justin Trudeau represented as an individual, you know, Regardless of maybe some of uh, of of his shortcomings in terms of experience, which of course compared to Stephen Harper, you, you, there's no contest in that. But I mean, I think Canadians, a lot of Canadians, responded to that on a on a on a on a personal level. So I think that that certainly does exist in this country as well. I mean, I do think also in both last year's Canadian election and probably a bit in the American election this past month. A big part of it was people were tired of the status quo. These were parties that had been in power for a long time. I mean, Democrats had been in the White House two terms. That's a solid eight years. Harper was in power for almost a decade. I think part of it was people were just tired of seeing the same faces in power. They wanted a change because things were not necessarily going well in either country. How much of that is could be attributed to the leaders in question is debatable, but to a lot of people who, who aren't going to be like us following politics all the time, they've got other things to do. They've got a rent to pay. They've got grocery bills to pay for, kids to take care of. To them, it's so much easier to just look at the guy in charge and be like, I think the problems in this country are because of this guy. I, I want to see a different party in charge. Yeah. Um, uh, I think... I think it's personally interesting when you think about, okay, so Obama will not follow in the footsteps of Ronald Reagan or FDR in having uh, a successor from his same party follow him. And the reason that won't be happening is because of the man who once questioned whether or not he was even born in this country. I think think there's something sadly poetic about (laughs) that. Um, But we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to play a clip now um, talking about the effect Uh, the possible effect that President-elect Trump may have on international power relations. Uh, So something else you said today I found particularly interesting, and that was in regards to U.S. leadership, particularly the U.S. as a leader of the free world, so to speak. Uh, So you mentioned that Trump truly believes, or seems to believe at least, that he's just taking America in a different direction. He's not giving up that leadership at all, but just taking them in a new direction. And you mentioned that should they go in this new direction, they might lose other countries, or countries will not be willing to follow the particular type of leadership that Trump uh, is espousing. So how might that 
impact power relations in the world or even just the United States as a metaphorical leader of the free world? I think it's a very tricky question, and it was prompted by Alan Rock, who uh, is teaching at the University of Ottawa, but as a former Canadian Minister of Justice and held a number of other portfolios. Um, uh, Mr. Rock said earlier in the in the uh, uh, conference that he thought that the U.S. had abandoned its leadership role of the West uh, and it was going to uh, never get it back, and that it was important for countries like Canada to step into the vacuum and to try to lead what's left. And I, my view is, is not that at all. I think that Donald Trump thinks that he is leading the West. He is leading the United States. The U.S. is still the leader, the winner, as he would say, or Charlie Sheen would say. Um, and what he's trying to do is take us in a different direction. And that direction is less about removing the barriers between countries and more about trying everyone trying to advance their position in a competition among countries. People talk about the return of great power politics. There's some of that there. Um, the return of competitive international relations, yes, there's some of that there. Um, I have a friend in New York who's um, he's always got clever things to say that sound very cool in New York-y. I'm, I'm from Detroit. I'm a Midwesterner, so I'm never very cool. But, but he always sounds very cool. It's like Seinfeld, but with an edge. Maybe Seinfeld with the Sopranos. Anyway, he, he was telling me that the, the reason that Donald Trump had a very successful visit to Mexico in the middle of the campaign and has had some more skill at international diplomacy than was expected yep. is that when you're a developer in New York and you're building buildings, you can't escape dealing with organized crime. And if you remember The Sopranos or the Godfather movies, there's a kind of uh, dignity to a mob boss who is polite, but you deal with your turf, I deal with my turf, you cross that line, we have a problem. If we don't have a problem, we have respect. And I think there is some of that with Donald Trump, which is going to be interesting in international relations. So um, whereas past presidents, including President Obama, have been very concerned with Russia uh, threatening its neighbors and perhaps encroaching into the Middle East, Donald Trump seems to feel that there's a line and that in the area, in the Russian area, Russia can do what it wants to do and the U.S. isn't going to try to make trouble for them on their side of the fence. On the other hand, we saw with his call with the Taiwanese president, um, he draws the line in a different place with China. And that line is not the nine-dash line, but actually it, China can do what it wants with China, but there are American allies in that island chain that we're willing to step up for. Now, th this is the makings of either a new understanding that helps us avoid great power conflict and is actually useful because the U.S. is not as predominant as it was, or it could be, if people misread the signals, the beginning of, of a return to great power rivalry that could start with proxy wars and then end up with quite a violent outcome. Um, but I don't think it's an abandonment of leadership. I think it's, it's Donald Trump in his own way trying to bring us, uh, or bring the United States, I would say, since this is, this is us, but that's you, um, to, to a place that he thinks is better, a position of strength, a position that better preserves the interests of the American people uh, than what his predecessors had done. So a very interesting set of pop culture references to kind of illustrate <laughs> what uh, Trump's new direction in international relations is going to be. Um, any thoughts to start with? Well, the mob boss comparison actually seems pretty apt considering his apparent view on nuclear proliferation, and I'm just dragging my own expertise here. And this is something I pulled off another podcast myself. It's Arms Control Wonk, a good one if you want to learn anything about nuclear weapons. His, his 
apparent willingness to just you know sort of ask countries guaranteed security by the u.s like say japan or south korea asking them to say you know pay their fair share for you know the u.s actually guarding them or uh, they're on their own which would likely lead to them needing to develop nuclear weapons because they've kind of got North Korea in that region. The idea is that maybe it's not so much he's willing to let them proliferate as he's trying to shake them down, so to speak. It's it's a protection racket. He, like, his attitude seems to be, if we're going to look out for this neighborhood, so to speak... We want to get something back for it. And to him, apparently, like, nuclear weapons not spreading isn't enough. There needs to be some kind of financial gain for the U.S. Maybe that's not accurate. Maybe he just genuinely thinks it's fine and daddy for nuclear weapons to spread. And if that's the case, then I'm then I'm really worried because I'd see that as a bad thing. But... I, I just study nuclear proliferation. What do I know? <laughs> but I do feel like his leadership style may, that might work well for New York real estate. It's not necessarily going to work well on the international stage. Like this is not like, like the U S is sort of the big fish in the pond here, but that doesn't mean you're not gonna have other countries lash out if it starts getting a little too pushy, a little too aggressive. I mean, we can already see, like, just in the past few weeks, that his relationship with China is not going to be so great. I mean, first there was the call to Taiwan. I see that makes the government in Beijing really uncomfortable because they were they're still working on the assumption that you know the U.S. is just officially accepting the one china policy and but I you know would say, Taiwan like, going back to the un points china's a country that likes to deal a little bit more quietly in the back rather than in yeah. the public eye so maybe it's one of those things that they're trying to negotiate on the back end i really did like your example in terms of you know what is donald trump doing with these countries in terms of creating a nuclear proliferation or non-proliferation Non-plurifil... Oh, non <laughs> trips over it. Sorry. <laughs> NP agreement, yeah. you know? And I think, you know, that it's not so much of a shakedown in terms of an American perspective because a lot of American citizens step back and say, you know, why are we paying a higher percentage for UN membership or why are we paying a higher percentage for NATO membership and NATO alliance? And as a superpower... There is an element of like you are protecting your own supremacy because you have more of a stake, more of a say, and it's a lesser proportion of your national economy to have that larger say and have those pulls in these international agreements. But I could see how you'd see it as kind of that like that mob-esque mentality. It, of, it does you know, come across that way sometimes, but protecting I, your turf. Yeah, yeah, I can see why people in the U.S. are angry that. They see some other countries aren't paying their fair share in terms of, say, like uh, the NATO requirement of 2% of GDP on defense. But that was devised. I mean, okay, maybe it'll still hold up these days the way things are going with Russia. This was devised 
when the Cold War was happening, for a lot of these countries, they they don't want to spend that much on defense anymore because 2% of GDP can be a lot. Canada spends like what? 20 billion or so on defense? We're not at the 2%. I mean, where are you going to get that money? Hey, don't you go dragging Canada into this. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, foiled. (laughs) So do you think this approach or this kind of new Trump direction kind of feeds into this theme of fragmentation and and leading to uncertainties because now it's kind of based on what Dr. Sands was saying, you know, a lot of the focus is, you know, making, well, obviously making, quote unquote, making America great again and and having it be the winner in this in the context of international relations. I, I would say that he is causing a lot of uncertainty. And I think a large part of it is intentional. He, he has seemed to express some, you know, support for Nixon's policies back in the day. And what Nixon is famous for in foreign policy, I mean, in terms like, okay, not necessarily in terms of like what he actually did, but in his viewpoints is sort of his madman approach for the Vietnam War, where the idea is basically, you know, just to come across as so erratic and unpredictable, you don't know what the the guy's going to do. Maybe he's going to decide one day, I'm sick of this Vietnam War, I'm launching a nukes at Hanoi. And the idea there would be, like, you you don't want the crazy guy to get too angry. You want to placate him a bit. And that that would have worked more in the Cold War when it's just, in terms of super, it's the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that doesn't work so well these days. The power's fragmented a lot. I mean, you've got the U.S. still, but you've got, and Russia is, well, a lot weaker than it was back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But now you've got China that's on the rise. You've got a whole bunch of other nuclear states now. I mean, back back during the Cold War, you didn't have a nuclear India and Pakistan, and, you know, if a nuclear war is going to start anywhere, it's probably going to be there. You've got Iran that's becoming much more powerful in the Middle East. It's This is not an international environment where the madman approach is going to work well. If anything, you're going to do a great job of convincing someone you're so unpredictable and dangerous, you're a threat, and they need to do something about you. I don't know if it's necessarily going to lead to war or what, but... Trump's uncertainty is causing fragmentation and there's going to be a collision at some point, I think. And I think to that end, you know, if there's kind of a retraction of the U.S. in a way of becoming more isolationist economically as well as militarily, are we going to create kind of an unintentional power vacuum or will it actually be more safe, right? It's it's hard to say because it's been in in a place of supremacy for such a time that to say what would happen, it it lends itself to another level of uncertainty. Absolutely. All right, we're gonna move on to our last clip of this episode. Uh, still Dr. Sands, but now talking about the media's role in the US Democratic elections. We'll conclude the discussion today with uh a question surrounding the media, which has gotten a lot of critique throughout the Trump campaign for their handling uh, of his speeches and uh, their messaging surrounding uh, both him and Hillary Clinton. So given this conflict, so to say, uh, 
how do you see the role of the media going forward, particularly in regards to the U.S.-Canada relationship, uh, but in general as well? This is an interesting, also an interesting question. Your questions are all excellent, by the way. Um, so when we say media, you, you know the roots of the word are that it's in the middle. It mediates between the people and officials. It mediates between the business and people. And one of the things that has been happening, I think, because of technology is a disintermediation of our relationships to people. And you saw this most powerfully when President-elect Trump um, first had a meeting with uh, some of the television news networks complaining about coverage. Uh, it was supposed to be an off-the-record meeting they went out and reported on anyway. He then went and did a YouTube explanation of what he was doing in his transition that was then viewed by more than 20 million people. Because he can. Because the technology exists and it's accessible to people and people are interested. Yep. Are all these things about the guy? What does he have to say for himself? Yep. And he's good at that. So I think there's a real threat to what we would think of as our sort of traditional media. And that, that's partly, again, a question of generation. Um, if you look at who's watching the evening news and the normal news hours, they're my parents, your grandparents. It's much more that tradition. Whereas for people who are my students and, and, and like yourself, uh, they're getting news on their smartphone, including fake news, crazy news, all kinds of stuff coming in, TMZ with the latest scandal about celebrities or Justin Bieber or both. Um, and so in that environment, um, sorting through it all is, is a challenge. And the media, I think, the news media, responded to that by trying to build a loyal viewership by offering them what they wanted, not necessarily what uh, they needed. Mm -hmm. So they would offer a left-wing view or a right-wing view or a view that was all economics all the time or a view that was all uh, you know, ethnic politics, African-American or Hispanic all the time, as a way of keeping people coming back because they were desperate to survive. Not many people in the media think that they're invulnerable. They all feel this pressure, and it's really tough to get a career going in the media. And if you don't have an opinion, you're often too bland to get promoted, and you don't get airtime or, or whatnot. So in this environment, I don't think it's a question of the media um, trying to spin the election in a particular way, it's the media trying to survive and to give people what they wanted. But the danger is that sometimes what you want isn't what's good for you. Yes. Um, I don't know if you remember, the, there's a famous platonic dialogue, um, urethro, where uh, the, the discussion is about how we should pray. And Socrates concludes that the way what we should pray for is that the gods give us what's good for us, but not what we want. And I, I think we, we need to be more conscious of what's good for us. And in our, as citizens, our consumption of media, our consumption of reading on the weekend, everything from novels to nonfiction, we need to improve our diet. We need to read better stuff um, and not just the easy trash that's everywhere. And I'm not picking on the journalists who do it, it, it but, but really it's all about that quick frisson of silliness that we could all do a little bit less uh, with. And I, I, I will say, um, for me, this election was interesting because um, it was so partisan that I had to stop looking at Facebook because some of my friends were off the deep end. Everything they said was like hysterical. And, you know, I felt bad for them. I wanted to call them and say, are you okay? What you just posted, it's incredible. And it wasn't, you know, my friends are on both sides of the aisle. And Twitter's almost the same way. You know, you, you almost don't want to see what people say in response to anything you tweet, even if it's blind, bland, because they just go crazy. So maybe we just need to take a deep breath and remember, um, and this will be my sort of closing thought for you. And I, this, your viewers are just immediately stop listening to me at this point. But 
I've now been in Washington about 25 years working in and around politics and politicians and worked with congressmen and administrations of both uh, parties. And the crazy secret I've learned is that almost every politician, every official in every administration at every level thinks they are doing the right thing. And they think that they're doing a good thing. And they're doing their best in the circumstance they find themselves to do a good thing. And there aren't a lot of evil people. And there aren't a lot of, uh, you know, real skunks who are out there trying to ruin the country. But our politics and our rhetoric and our media conversation is often black and white, good guys, bad guys, you're with us or you're against us, to borrow a famous phrase. And, um, and we need to mature that and recognize there's a lot of good in what people are trying to do. They may be wrong, they may be wrong-headed or confused or, or, or have a bad idea, but, but they're not evil. Um, we need to let go of that uh, a little bit, I think, if we want a healthier body politic. Lots to digest there. And I think um, looking back uh, when, when, when we all study this election and when, when future generations study this election, I think the, the narrative about the role of the media and how the media approach this election uh, will be very interesting. And I think it'll be interesting to see moving forward uh, not necessarily even just in a political climate, but we see that the, the role of the media is changing because the environment is changing. Now everyone can be a reporter. Everyone carries around their phones. They can be a photographer. They can re- be a reporter. They can do all of that themselves. And um, I even think, too. Some of us can even record a podcast. Yeah, some of us can even record a <laughs> podcast. Uh, the special ones. The special yeah, ones can record a podcast. But I even think, like, you know. My folks still watch the 10 o'clock. They watch the national. They watch the news at 10 o'clock where they, where they download all of the news from the day. And there are times where my dad has been like, oh, like, can you believe this happens? Like, dad, that happened like eight hours ago. Like, I saw that on Twitter like eight <laughs> hours ago. Like, why are you only? So I think this speaks to something larger than just politics. But I, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts about, about gap, right. the role of the media in democratic elections and how that's kind of manifested itself in this most recent American well, election? I think one thing that's really apparent is that in journalism, there are courses on journalistic ethics and how you're supposed to approach research, how you're supposed to approach interviews. And a lot of people, right, because anyone can blog, anyone can do a podcast, anyone can, the, you The know, special people can do the a special, podcast. <laughs> the really special people can do a podcast. And it's one of those things that when, when it really becomes an open source world, we we kind of bypass all those things and saying, you know, it's not necessary or you want to hear real talk. You don't want to hear, you know, what may or may not be like ethical. <laughs> you don't want to go through like the nuances and the trappings of, you know, what real in-depth media research does. And I think Facebook tends to play into that a lot. I don't know how many of you have had friends that start off a thing that say, I'm going to be really real now, and if you don't like it, you can unfriend me. And I always thought that was a bit... <laughs> have you guys had that? I've never seen that. Yeah. Or, I mean, I've seen I've that. I've seen it a few times, and then I just... I don't unfriend them. I just hide their posts forever. Just glare at them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's kind of an attempt at being brave, but you also don't want to be considered the person who says, you know, when someone slightly disagrees with my politics, I'm just going to cut off all connection. And I don't want to be approached with anything that's going to really break down my worldview. I think that ties in with that kind of dichotomy, black and white approach that uh, Dr. Sands was talking about. It's kind of what he said, my way or the highway, or 
No, he didn't say that. You're, you're, either, with, <laughs> I, you're either with me I, or you're yeah, against yeah. me. <laughs> that was the wrong it's quote. It's just another way of saying but it. But yeah. still works. <laughs> All right. But yeah, no, that's a very, it's a very interesting point to bring up because I think even in how we think, I mean, even having critical minds, often we fall into this trap of, of looking at one way, especially if, if you're surrounded by people who see things a certain way and, and kind of good guy, bad guying it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose even we experts can uh, sort uh, of live just, in just a bubble. For those of you listening, Mark was doing air quotes when he said "experts." Oh, yeah. sarcastic air quotes. <laughs> I, I thought I thought the sarcasm came across clear in my voice, but just to clarify, yeah, yeah, always good to have some insurance. But yeah, even those of us who actually like have to pay regular attention to the news because it plays a big role in what we study, we can get caught in the bubble sometimes. Like, God knows that I end up unconsciously valuing, say, what the New York Times would report over, say, anything I see that's associated with Fox News, for instance, go with the two really obvious examples. And, you you know, that just because the New York Times, I think, ends up being more accurate, it doesn't mean they're always going to have it right, just as how I think, well, Fox News is just a bastion of crazy conservative ideas. They could still be right, and I and I would probably just ignore them because it's like that's Fox News. They're they're just out to promote their wild conservative agenda, and I feel like that kind of mentality has been building up a long time. Like not just in the U.S. It's this is an international thing at this point, and we're really just seeing, you know the rotten fruit of uh, that process now. It's been building up a long time, and finally we're seeing like a, a political candidate who's basically gotten by because he's just had fake news promoting him, and we're all, and a lot of people are just willing to trust that news without questioning, like, is it actually accurate? Am I getting is this just being sensationalized what's going on anymore and i think that that speaks to i think a trend that has been happening for a while we're seeing more and more a blurring of the lines between fact and opinion and then even you know you 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 use fox news as an example and this is true if you want to go on the left side with msnbc as well but but take fox news for example fox Fox has opinion shows like Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, and then they have they have genuine news shows like with with Megyn Kelly and and Brett Beyer and others, I'm sure, and Chris Wallace. But people conflate the two, and that is that is I guess speaks to this idea of the fake news that that you know people were, were harping on it all through the election uh, on both sides, primarily with Donald Trump, that that you, you just make up things and people will believe you. And they'll take you at your word and that that's a fact when, in fact, it's an opinion. Another thing I find really kind of scary playing into this is our major media outlets are not necessarily just pertaining to these news outlets, but it's Google, it's Facebook, it's all the social media we use in the search engines. And they're programming in algorithms from a market sense that are trying to, you know, figure out you like this brand of shoes. So all of a sudden it shows up in the right hand of your search bar. And they're doing the same thing with how your news appears in your feed. So you search one thing and it follows a trend line like you read this article on climate change. Other readers also read this and you kind of stay in that bubble on both sides. 
Yeah, I think they're, I mean, in that way, it's kind of prompting up this confirmation bias with which we already maybe approach or many people approach the media. And then with that addition, it's really helping you, as you said, as you said, stay in this bubble of what you want to, what you know and what you want to know and continue knowing. Absolutely. Um, we're, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to bring things together now. Um, I wanted to give everybody around the table here the opportunity, if you had any kind of final thoughts on anything that we talked about, anything from the conference, um, what are, what are your concluding remarks? Uh, if you, if you want to be so formal. I got to say, this is going to be informal. It's nice that 2016 is finally coming to an end. Let's face it, it's been a rough it's been a rough year all around, guys. Not not the worst year on record by far, but it's not great. Now we can start dreading 2017. <laughs> well, I really kind of hope, like coming out of this conference, that there is going to be an incentive to leaders for someone to step up on the international stage and be a spearhead for things that need to get done. For example, there isn't a lot of consensus on what to do in Syria or other fragile states. But to say that we're too afraid to touch it because of political reasons, I think is really, really outdated. And we need someone who's going who's going to be the forefront. And whether that means the UN getting more teeth, becoming a bit stronger opinion under its new leadership, mm. you know, I think it's a really appropriate place for us to start off 2017. I guess my first thought is I really wish I went with you, Bridget, to the conference, like Mitch said, because it sounded really interesting. Um, and another thought, I mean, tailing on what Mark said, yes, we're now able to dread 2017 coming up very, very soon. But uh, yeah, we're living in interesting times and, and mm. all this uncertainty and um, that we spoke about today in our discussion. I'm, I'm very, I mean, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but I'm very interested to see what happens due to this this uh, trend and fragmentation. Absolutely, and you know, uh, lots to look forward to, or lots to 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 digest with anticipation um, as we move forward into 2017, and and frankly, uh, beyond that, I think just from the perspective of if we, on our last topic, um, the incoming president, we're looking at four years, likely. I mean, you never know, but uh, 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 four years. Um, uh, in the immediate future and the impact that will have. Um, we want to uh, uh, conclude by giving a big thanks to um, the scholars that we were able to interview, um, that we were able to use these clips in tonight's roundtable, um, Dr. Jane Bolden, Dr. Martin Geiger, and Dr. Christopher Sands. We thank them for their insights and all things international affairs and security as we look forward to 2017. Uh, we also want to give a special thank you to Dr. Andrea Charon, who is the director for the Center uh, for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies, uh, for providing us with the exclusive coverage and interviews uh, at this prominent event. It really was uh, an honor to be there, uh, and we thank her for allowing us to, to uh, be there uh, and be able to share it with all of you. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at Policy Talks Pod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd absolutely love to hear from you from any topics that you want to hear uh, for Policy Talks or any commentary from things that you've heard us say. Uh, send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter 
And as many of you are, we will be taking our holiday break as well. So you can hear us again for our third season in the new year. Uh, we also want to give a quick thanks to our esteemed roundtable researchers who are with us tonight, Mark Hyken and Bridget Healy. Uh, of course, also thanking uh, Nicole Halseth and Matt Potter. Uh, and last but not least, our research and technical crew, Samran Roy and our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next year, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Policy Talks.